Well, if you like these things and you like to see where we're going, on the back of the notice sheet, you'll see um, a sermon outline. Uh, there is a, a little bit of room for taking notes if you want to do that, uh, but it will certainly help you to see where we're going uh, this evening. We're asking the question, do all good people go to heaven? For many, it's a, it's a no-brainer, no question, of course, good people go to heaven. A recent survey in the US found that 76% of people interviewed believed in heaven and 75% gave themselves, I quote, a good to excellent chance of getting there. Presumably 1% were having a bad day. The popular assumption is that if we're good, we'll go to heaven. Just listen to the way people speak when a loved one dies. Uh, the sudden death of Alan Ball, one of the England World Cup winning squad of 1966, made the headlines last month. There were many wonderful tributes from the great and the good of the football world. But it was the words of Alan's son, Jimmy, that, that really hit me. Jimmy said of his dad, it's a great thing to be able to say of your dad. I'd love, this, I'd love my, my boy, Joshua, to be able to say it of me. He said, I would like him to be known as a nice man with a passion for football. He had a big heart and was very generous. Isn't that great? Very moving tribute, especially when he described his dad as the most wonderful person he knew. And when he said that his father missed his uh, mother Leslie terribly after she died from cancer three years ago. And then he added these words, I hope they're together now in heaven. He was a good man, I, I hope he's in heaven now. Good people go to heaven, that's what most people think. Now, as we open the Bible together, we meet a man who held that uh, popular assumption. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 10, verse 17, page 1014, page 1014 in the church Bibles. Mark chapter 10. And the second of the two readings that uh, Graham read for us earlier. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to get to heaven? That's his question. It's our question tonight. Do I have to be good? Is that it? As we read on, it becomes clear that this man thought he was a good person. In verse 19, Jesus reminded him of the Ten Commandments. And then this man declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. No, I've never been in trouble with the police, never murdered anyone. I'm a law-abiding citizen, I don't steal or lie, I'm a good son, I honour my father and mother. He thought he was a good guy, and there's no reason to think that he wasn't. He's the sort of person you'd like to have as your next-door neighbour. Decent bloke, wouldn't get involved with drugs, wouldn't, you, wouldn't keep you up all night with all-night parties. Uh, when you went away on holiday, you would keep an eye on the house, feed the cat, water the plants, that sort of thing. So uh, this man asked Jesus the question in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I imagine he thought he already knew the answer. Be a good Jewish lad. Keep the Ten Commandments. Be a good boy. I remember well being asked a similar question just weeks after I'd been ordained. It was a few days before taking the first funeral I'd ever taken. I went to meet the widow after I sat down in her front room and she'd made a pot of tea, she looked at me with, with tears in her eyes and she said this of her husband. He wasn't a religious man, but he was a good man, you know. He always tried to help others. He never did anybody any harm. He's in heaven now, isn't he, Vicar? 
She asked the question expecting me to say, oh yes, I'm sure he is. Now the man in Mark 10 is doing the same, asking a question expecting he knew the answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He presumed Jesus would say, be a good law-abiding Jewish person and you'll be just fine. But that isn't what Jesus said at all, is it? See, Jesus challenges the popular assumption and gives us a second point on the handout, an unpopular declaration. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. At first, it seems Jesus doesn't answer the question. Yeah, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then seems to go off at a tangent. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Jesus is, in fact, challenging the preconceived idea that this man came with. You see, in verse 17, the young man had addressed Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus says that's the key to understanding how to get eternal life. Understanding this word good. Well, and indeed, understanding who I am. But for now, understanding this word good. And you see it there in verse 18 again. No one is good except God alone. Now please note these words this evening. Words straight from the lips of Jesus. They couldn't be clearer. No one is good. Mother Teresa, Princess Diana, Nelson Mandela, Cliff Richard, Gareth Rowe, the nicest person you know. It's not often that you get listed in that sort of group of people, is it, Gareth? Gareth Rowe, the nicest person you know, you, me, no one is good except God alone. Now, that isn't popular to talk like that because that tells me that if getting to heaven is about being good, then no one stands a chance because no one is good except God alone. And it's not popular because it tells me that I'm not good. And we don't like to hear that. Most of us here, I would imagine, think of ourselves as good people. Like this rich man, we're law-abiding citizens who pay our taxes and we don't kick the neighbour's cat. If you call yourself a Christian here this evening, while you know what Jesus says is true because you've been taught that everything he says is true, and while you know that you ought to believe everything he says, if we're honest, how many of us, as we engage with these words of Jesus in verse 18, find ourselves screaming out inside, well, I don't think I agree with that. I am a good person. And the reason we find verse 18 so difficult is because we don't understand the word sin. Now look, before we go any further, let me pause here for a moment. Over the past weeks we've been looking at, in this series, Christianity Under Scrutiny, and each week I've tried to give you one big word to remember. Remember if you were here two weeks ago, how do you know God exists? One big word to remember, revelation. How can you trust the Bible last week? One big word, inspiration. This week, as we ask, do all people go to heaven? One big word to note, sin. And unless we understand what the Bible means by the word sin, we will never understand why Jesus says no one is good except God alone. Unless we understand this word sin as the Bible explains it, we will never uh, grasp why a moral, upright life is not a ticket to heaven. Now let me point out to you why it's so crucial that we do understand this. When we uh, lived in London, one of our, our neighbours across the road uh, was a delightful lady. Still is, as far as I know she's still alive. 
Uh, She bought presents for our children at Christmas, even though we didn't know her that well. She was always pleasant to us uh, when we uh, passed each other in the street. She looked after the house when we went on holiday. And when I thought of dear Maureen, I I was always tempted to think, because she was such a nice person, I was always tempted to think, well, surely she'll be okay when she dies. She's a nice person. She never, ever accepted an invitation to the carol service or to the church or to anything that we laid on. She didn't want to talk about the Lord Jesus at all. But I kept thinking, but she's a good person. Surely God will let her into heaven. Now, my guess is that I'm not the only one who thinks like that some way. In fact, I know I'm not. I know I meet people who, and this is very hard, whose loved ones or people who are close to them have just died and even though they know the gospel, suddenly they start thinking, but, but surely they're a nice person. Now, Christian, do you see the danger if we don't understand what sin really is? See, if I believe, if I believe that she'll get into heaven because she's moral, then, well, I'll never t- tell her about the Lord Jesus, will I? And the reason I think those thoughts is I've forgotten what the Bible tells me sin is. I'm redefining that word. The preacher Pete Woodcock very helpfully explains how we've taken the edge off the word sin by limiting it to what he calls safety zones. And then he gives a few of those safety zones. He says there's the old-fashioned religious zone for the word sin. So if we put, it into, if we put this word into, into the old-fashioned religious zone, it's not really very powerful. So the Pet Shop Boys sang a few years ago, It's a Sin. Do you remember the song? Everything I ever done, everything I ever do, every place I've ever been, everywhere I'm going to, it's a sin. They were referring to their repressive Roman Catholic upbringing. See, for them, sin is something that, that cramps and confines you. Something that was, uh, something was labelled sin in their thinking to make you feel guilty about it. They say that in, in, in the lyrics. They feel guilty about everything. See, if you put uh, sin into the old-fashioned religious zone, then, uh, well, you can ride it off, can't you? So the old-fashioned religious, old religious zone, we think of, uh, of finger-wagging people, moralizers, Puritans, old-fashioned Sunday school teachers and nuns who want to take all the fun out of life. You think of it like that, you're going to write it off, do you see? Oh, and then there's the, the sexuality zone. Years ago, it was seen in the seaside postcards. You know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, hanky, panky. Something a bit naughty, but, but you didn't really talk about it, but it was a bit of fun, really. Until 15 or 20 years ago, it was shorthand for a couple living together before they were married. They were living in sin. Don't use that phrase anymore. That's very outdated, because so many people are, you see. Now, you see, you keep sin to the sexuality zone, and we can write it off as puritanical and outdated. Then there's the, the lack of self-control zone. Oh, you know, I really couldn't help myself, but then no one's perfect, are they? So when I sinned, it wasn't my fault. Just lack of self-control. It, it's the old advert for cream cakes. Do you remember the, the strap line? Naughty but nice. That's sin, isn't it? Can't take it seriously when we start describing it like that. And then there's the, this is bizarre, the light-hearted put-myself-down put zone. Have you heard this? Uh, so we hear people saying, I got promoted for my sins. What a staggering thought. I was promoted to a stopped top security guard man because I'm a thief. It's bizarre, isn't it? 
I met a guy once who was doing the same job as me and I said, uh, 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 where are you? He said, oh, uh, I'm the vicar of St. James for my sins. <laughs> I wanted to say to him, no, you're the vicar of St. James for everybody else's sins. But, yeah. Now, do you see, when we limit the, the word sin to those safety zones, we never have to take it seriously. In 1983, the US psychologist Carl Menninger wrote an interesting book with the title Whatever Happened to Sin? In that book, he argued that the notion of evil has slid from being defined theologically, that is, in other words, as an offence against God, to it becoming a crime defined legally, in other words, our effect on people and society, to now being sickness defined only in psychological terms in other words what it does to me so sin is only a sin when it hurts me if you hurt me and you you must mess my mind up oh then you've sinned it's got nothing to do now with with our relationship with god you see the slip in modern thinking sin is no longer an offense against god so it's not so bad and i'm not so bad And so, of course, I'll go to heaven when I die because I'm a good person. Do you see how we've done it? So you read the word sin in the Bible and you kind of write it off. It's not really that serious, is it? Because you've put it in one of these zones that you don't take very seriously anyway. Well, look, to understand the word sin, we need to go right back to the beginning of the Bible and we come to our third point, the theological interpretation. Come with me to Genesis chapter 1. would be a good habit to be reading Genesis 1, 2 and 3 regularly. Uh, I don't know why, we, we seem to steer away from Genesis 1, 2 and 3. I suppose all sorts of, all sorts of uh, worries about those early chapters, but they do, they're there deliberately. They set the scene for so much of what we need to know as Christians. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, page 4, I never understand why Genesis chapter 1 is on page 4, but there we are, that's another thing. We can talk about that another time. Somebody can explain it to me sometime. But anyway, it's on page... Page 4, page 3 of the Bible, but we're going to start on page 4. Genesis chapter 1 establishes God as the creator and ourselves as creatures. That is very important. God is the creator, we are creatures, dependent upon him for life and breath and everything. The constant refrain through chapter 1 of Genesis, as most of you will know, as God created the world, was that as he looked at his creation, he saw that it was good. If you read through Genesis chapter 1, at the end of every day, he says, and it was good. Our good God created a good universe. He made the world a good world, and he made people good too. Indeed, having made human beings, he declared his creation very good in verse 31. Do you see it there? Verse 31, God saw all that he was made, and it was very good. But you and I know it didn't stay that way, either because we've read the Bible or just because we live. We know it didn't stay that way. So you see, having created Adam, God gave him one command. Have a look over to chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, in verse 16, notice the freedom that is given to Adam. You are free to eat from any tree. Isn't that wonderful? What a good and kind God we have. Adam, I've made this wonderful world. 
and you can do anything in it. You've got the whole run of the world. Go and, go and have fun in this great, good world that is wonderful and pleasurable. Go and have fun. There's only one thing you can't do, just one. Verse 17, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what do we do? We'll see this in a moment. We look at all the, we, 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 we narrow in on that one, don't we? We'll see this in a moment. Just think for a moment, the great things that God has given us. Go and enjoy the whole world. Just one thing you can't do. It's the only command God gave. But it's very explicit and the penalty for disobedience is very precise. Verse 17, eat and you will die. Couldn't be clearer. And since the Creator has spoken so clearly, we would expect Adam to obey, wouldn't we? Except, of course, we know that he didn't. And so disaster strikes as we turn to Genesis chapter 3. And it's in understanding Genesis chapter 3 that we understand what sin really is. See, in chapter 3 we find the serpent is tempting Eve. Tempting Eve to be independent of God. And tempting Eve to to sit in judgment over God's word instead instead of sitting humbly under it. See, God has spoken in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17... Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 is God's word. And then Satan tempts Eve by asking verse verse 1, did God really say? See, we'll see Satan will not obey God and he's tempting Eve and Adam not to obey God's word either. He's tempting them to say to themselves, I'm not going to listen to God. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll put myself in the place of God. That's the essence of sin. Now, if you don't hear what I'm going to... If you get lost in what I'm going to say, don't forget this. This is the the key point. I've given you the, the answer before I've explained it. I'll put myself in the place of God. That is the essence of sin. When I say, I'm not listening to you, God, I'll make up the rules. I'll be God. That's sin. And that is what Satan is tempting us all to do all the time and he does it very subtly. Let's see how he does it. Firstly, Satan denies the goodness of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, look, the answer is no. God didn't say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Quite the opposite. We've already seen. God said you can eat from any tree except one. But that's one of Satan's biggest strategies. See, he twists God's word and and then he tries to convince us that God isn't good. See the way he puts it? Did God really say you can't eat from any? Did did God say that? No, God didn't say that at all. God is a good God. He said you can have all of the garden. You can go and run and play and enjoy it. But of course what Satan is doing is he's twisting it and then he's focusing in selectively on the command not to eat. Now I meet tons of people who think that Christianity is all about the knots. Have you met people like that? Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal. Christianity is all about not doing this, that and the other, isn't it? Of course it isn't. But that's what Satan tells us it is because that's what Satan is doing here. He emphasises the negative. When you are tempted, in whatever way, when you are tempted, does not Satan tell you that God is is not very good? He's actually, well, he's trying to cramp you and confine you. He's denying you stuff. See, Satan says nothing about the liberty, nothing about the freedom, nothing about the tremendous creation God has given to Eve and Adam. 
He's given the impression that God is a denier. He's denying you that one tree. He does the same in verse 5. See, in verse 5 he says, there's an enlightenment, an opening of the eyes that God is denying you. Oh, God is a cruel God, isn't he? See, the devil all the time is out to deny the goodness of God. Have you noticed that when you are tempted to sin? Every time you're tempted to sin, you think God is not good. He said something that is very clear and I ought to obey it, but that's not good for me. And Satan then makes the permitted, the permitted things seem stale and boring and he makes the prohibited things seem very exciting. Have you noticed that? So in verse 6, Satan has persuaded Eve that the fruit of the forbidden tree was pleasing and desirable. Sin always looks inviting. That's why we do it. It's one of the devil's favourite ploys then to tell us that to obey God is not good for us. Listen again to Pete Woodcock. He's very good on this. He says this. When I'm tempted to lie, I'm disbelieving God who said do not lie. And the reason I'm disbelieving God is the sin behind the lie is I don't believe God is good. When I'm in a difficult situation, I'm late for something very important. I think to myself, if I don't lie, people will think bad of me. I might even get the sack. It's for my good if I lie. So I'll just say that the bus was late. Or I had cramp in my leg. Or my bed exploded at night. I tell a lie to get out of trouble because if I tell the truth, I'm going to get in trouble. Therefore, God, you're not good in telling me I should not lie. And so we start to think, you're not for my good, God. It's not a good law. You're not a good God. This is for my good that I lie. Now, I was going to say, of course that happens to you. You know that, don't you? You know how that works. Let me speak to the men here. When pornography comes into your email and you're tempted to have a little peek and you think, what do you think? No one will know. It's not doing anyone any harm. The woman's paid for this. It gives her a job. Your wife's downstairs. There's no problem with this. It will relieve some of the pressure. It will do you good. It's for your good. Just a little peek. It will do you good, won't it? But God says do not commit adultery and Jesus emphasises that in talking about lust for a woman. And so you're tempted at that point, God, you're not for my good at all, are you? Your law about adultery is not a good law. This is for my good. That's sin. When I start thinking that God is not a good God and I start ignoring God. You see, sin is not just the pornography, it is the pornography and the, uh, and the lying and all of that, but it's the, 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 what's really behind it. At that point, I'm denying God. I'm denying that he's a good God, that his word is good. So Satan denies the goodness of God and he does it by questioning the word of God. Secondly, we see Satan denies the holiness of God as expressed in judgment because that's where you see the holiness of God. See, look at verse 4 of chapter 3. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Now again, we've just looked at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Once again, Satan flatly contradicts the word of God. You will not die. God won't judge you. God's not like that. Notice how the argument, argument shifts. It is, in fact, the opposite of what Satan has just said in our first point. You'll say, hey, these two don't, don't stack up, but then ah, Satan's not bothered about, uh, about being consistent. He just wants people to reject God. So in the first point, 
Satan might have just denied the goodness of God. Now he's trying something else and he says, God is a good God. He's a loving God. He'll just let you off. You won't die. God's a big old softy in the sky. He's a celestial grandfather you wouldn't, who wouldn't dream of punishing you. So do whatever you like. Ignore God. won't do you any harm. You won't die. How do you see how at that point, yeah, the, the argument has shifted and Satan now denies the holiness of God as expressed in judgment. Let me say clearly, God is holy and God's holiness never comes to terms with evil. God is hostile to evil. He can never negotiate or compromise. The wages of sin is is what? Death. And it is always death. It's not, I'll let you off this time. And, And it's never that. One day the judgment of a holy God will come upon those who are unrepentant. But you can be sure the devil will lie about that. And so do you see how we're constantly tempted to belittle sin? It's not very important. Constantly tempted to belittle its consequences. It won't really matter. You see, sin these days is never seen as an offence against God. An offence that causes his holy character to cry out in judgement. And these days, sin is never carrying the death penalty. Well, Satan denies the goodness of God. Satan denies the holiness of God. Thirdly, Satan denies the uniqueness of God. See, here we see that he he denies that we are just creatures. Look at verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eat from the tree. Go on, Eve. Go on, Eve. Eat from the tree and you'll become like God. There's no distinction between you and God or there need be no distinction between you and him. Again, that's the essence of sin, isn't it? Now look, the the knowledge of good and evil here, I think we need to get this very clear, the knowledge of good and evil here refers not to knowing the difference between right and wrong. Adam and Eve already knew that. They already knew the difference between right and wrong. God had told them what was right and what was wrong back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, hadn't he? No, the knowledge of good and evil refers to deciding what is right and wrong. Becoming like God in that sense. You can decide. It's up to you. See, you can take of the fruit and you can say, that's not wrong. I'm going to decide that's not wrong. That's perfectly all right for me. And so we see that sin is not so much rule-breaking, but rule-making. Rule-making. I'll decide what is right and wrong. I'll be God, you see. That's why the essence of sin is lawlessness, as we read in 2 Thessalonians. So, This is important. I can be a morally upright person and still be a terrible sinner. Oh, look, little illustration to make the point. You're driving down Forward Road at 30 miles an hour and it looks like at that point you're a law-abiding citizen. That isn't necessarily the case at all though, is it? You might just think that it's good to drive at 30 miles an hour down Forward Road. You're not a law-abiding citizen. You're just pleased that the law agrees with you. It's very convenient. That's how many moral people live. They live according to God's laws in many ways, but not because they want to obey God, but because they think it's a good way to live and they're pleased that God's law agrees with them. 
That's why moral law-abiding citizens can shock us when out of the blue we discover that they've been involved in huge fraud or have a stack of child pornography on their computer at home or have been abusing their wife. Or... Now, you see, here's the big point to get hold of. The essence of sin is not that I'm a morally bad person. The essence of sin is that I make up the rules. And when my rules match God's rules, I can look very respectable. Why many people in Britain look respectable because we've been brought up in a society that has basically taken on God's rules. But when my rules differ from God's rules, well then I'll run my life my way and I don't want God to be telling me what to do. I'm going to be God. That's sin. And you see, it is a terrible, terrible crime. It is in fact the greatest crime in the universe for God gave us everything. Life and breath and everything good that we enjoy, they all come from him. And so do you see how outrageous it is to shake your fist in the face of God? And yet that is what you and I do every time we refuse to obey God. So when I tell a little white lie, Yes, that is sin, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is that the God who said, you shall not lie, I am saying to him at that point, I don't care what you've said, God, I'm going to tell this lie anyway and I'm becoming God. Do you see? We all do it all the time. And so do you see why Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And why Paul wrote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a terrible crime. And it has terrible consequences. It it ends our relationship with God and it keeps us out of heaven. And before we leave Genesis chapter 3, let me just show you the devastating results of sin. You see, sin provokes God's curse. Again, not language we like using. I wonder if you've ever heard from the pulpit probably from this pulpit, because there have been many fine preachers in the past, but I wonder if you've ever heard about God's curse. It's all the way through the Bible. You can't read the Bible seriously and not see it. Well, it's right at the beginning. God sends a curse. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse to you above all the livestock. He curses Satan. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 17, and you'll see it again. Chapter 3, verse 17, To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The world we live in has a curse hanging over it. The curse of God is hanging over our world. That's why it doesn't matter what we do, actually, in many respects, we're never going to make the world a better place. There is a curse upon it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Well, because of uh, sin then, a curse has come upon the world, but also because of sin, death enters the world. Again, do you remember chapter 2, verse 17? When you eat of it, you will surely die. And it did happen. We then see death spectacularly entering the world in chapter 5. Have you ever read chapter 5 of Genesis? I remember when I was first becoming interested in Christian things, my brother gave uh, me and and our whole family a, a, a Bible. It was at Christmas time. 
And I started reading it through from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, because I thought that's what you did with books. You start at the first page, you go through. And I was getting on okay. I didn't understand a lot of it, but I was getting on all right until I came to chapter 5, and I put it down. I was thoroughly depressed, because everybody dies at every other, every other line. And then he died is the great refrain. My brother said to me, how are you getting on with it? I said, well, I've stopped reading, actually, because everybody dies in chapter 5. I couldn't stand it any longer. He said, you started in Genesis. You ought to start in Matthew. So I did, and I got on much better, and I became a Christian. <laughs> But you see, here it is, chapter 5, everyone dies. And then he died, the constant refrain, and then he died. The results of sin, there is a curse upon the world. Death has entered the world. And the most devastating of all, sin leaves mankind separated from God. Look at chapter 3, verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. He put him on the east. Now going east is always to be banished from the presence of God in the book of Genesis. You can see that in chapter 4 verse 16. Cain, after he'd killed his brother Abel, Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. See, going east is being kicked, kicked out of the presence of God always. Now do you see what's happened then? Because of sin, curse, death, separation from God are the result of sin. And we see the devastating effects of sin in our world every day, in our newspapers, on our television sets. We live in a world that is not at ease with itself. We see people all around us dying. And the curse of death and separation from God will ultimately be seen in the final judgment of hell. And we'll be thinking about that next week, is it? Is it right for a God of love to send people to hell? We'll think about that next week. But hell will be where we are cursed with separation from God forever in a spiritual death. We don't deserve heaven because we're not good. We are rebels in God's world. And so finally and very quickly we see on the fourth point on the handout the necessary, the necessary substitution. We need a substitute to take our place. See, when you've seen how serious sin is, you see that living a morally good life will never deal with the problem of the curse and death and separation from God. But then you and I know that, because we've seen lots of people who've tried to live really good lives and they still die. But all is not lost. For Jesus did live a life of complete obedience to the Father. And as he died on the cross, he took the punishment we deserved. Do you you remember what the punishment was? He was separated from the Father. Remember these three things? Separated from the Father. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Separated from the Father. And then three verses later, Mark tells us he breathed his last. He suffered death. Separation from God, death. And what is the significance of Jesus dying on the cross? Do you know? Could Jesus not just have died in his bed? What is the significance of Jesus dying on the cross? Well, what are we looking for? We're looking for somebody to deal with the curse. On the cross, Jesus was under the curse of God. One last cross reference, but it's well worth turning up. Come with me to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Page 1170. Page 1170. 
Remember Genesis, the great problem, what's the problem of sin? The curse, death and separation from God. Jesus died on the cross, he was separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died on the cross and he died on the cross because, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's the significance of dying on a cross. And so, do you see, he won heaven for us by being separated from God in death on a cross. Do all good people go to heaven? No, because there are no good people. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray together.